The New Testament scripture reading today is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. As the children's lesson told you about the Good Samaritan. And it reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered right. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and he saw him and passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So the story of the Good Samaritan is a classic for all the, it's often repeated for all the different kinds of lessons it teaches. Today I want to use it to emphasize the value of being a volunteer. The Samaritan volunteered. He gave of himself without any promise of return. But he could have done differently, even than what the, the Bible says. What if he just was afraid to act, and so he went and he'd go across the road and hide behind the bush and just watch and see maybe somebody else will come by and take care of this guy. Or if somebody else will come, I'll help him, but I'm not going to be the first one to help him. Or in the ultimate is, well, if I wait long enough, maybe the problem will solve itself. The other thing is that he was prepared to act. Where did the wine and the oil and the bandages come from? He had them with him. So it mattered a great deal that he acted. A number of us in this congregation are participants in a mission project called PET, Personal Energy Transportation. We renamed it now Mobility Worldwide. It's a charity that our church contributes to and that a number of our members founded the local affiliate. In about 2004, our Methodist men's group watched a video about PET the PET was founded by Mel West, a Methodist minister, and Larry Hills, a missionary in the Congo. The missionary observed that they were helping a lot of people with polio and lost their legs to polio and landmines and a few other things. And he says to his preacher friend in the States, he says, we could really use a three-wheel cart that is pedaled and has cargo capacity Mel West took the challenge. You see, Mel's ethos is that when the line of human need crosses the line of my ability to respond, I have responsibility to do something. So Mel acted. He contacted his friend, a product designer named Earl Miner. 
And Earl made four prototypes of a cart, an early version of this, and they were sent to Africa for harsh testing, and they passed. Mel and Earl founded PET in Mel's garage in Columbia, Missouri in 1994. Larry joined them by starting his own shop in Penny Farms in Florida. The mission of Mobility Worldwide is to share the love of God by providing the gift of mobility to all in need, starting with those most in need and in the most difficult places. So back to Holotus in 2004, we decided to start helping a group in Luling, Texas, who were building carts. We'd go over and help them uh, learn how to build parts, and uh, then we would come back and build parts and give them to them. So in 2005, we decided we can do this. We'll start our own affiliate. But first, we needed a shop. So I told them, I'm getting ready to build a shop. And when I get through, we could use part of it to make pet parts. And by the way, if you help me, it'll come a lot faster. <laughs> so for nine months, 40 or 50 people, largely from this congregation, from friends at work, from my family, and a few others that we found, we built a shop. And they all volunteered every weekend, or not almost every weekend. And we built a real esprit de corps, a real friendship working together. And I've been repaying that debt voluntarily for a long time. Meanwhile, in 2005, Rodney Huff, a former member of Holotus Hills, already had a shop, and he offered it to us. That was about the time that my shop was down to the painting stage. Nobody really wanted to paint when they could be making parts. So they made parts, and I painted. I also got to use, we also got the use of a small airplane hangar to do some work in, and we eventually moved into it. It wasn't much, but it was ours. Today, we rent a shop on Tacoma by the airport, and we built 1,500 carts, and mostly we've shipped them to Mexico. Locally, we have, we've had a few hundred volunteers for at least a day, and some of them have hung around for 10 years. Mobility Worldwide celebrated its 25th anniversary this year at our annual convention in Austin. We have 25 affiliates across the United States that do the same thing we do. Two of them, uh, one's in uh, Sierra Leone and one's in Zambia in Africa. Delbert Groves heads the mobility cart shop in Zambia, and he's also a minister in the New Life Church, which is an affiliate of the United Methodist Church. So we have connections several ways. Together, up to date, we've built 80,000 carts and distributed them to 102 countries, different countries. That's about 7,000 a year lately. In San Antonio, we produce about 200 of that 7,000. 7,000 is hardly scratching the surface. Our goal is to increase our production of assistive devices, not only ruggedized carts, but regular wheelchairs, crutches, braces, and the like, to 70,000 per year. Some of us dream about rocket-powered crutches. The World Health Organization estimates that somewhere between 20 and 70 million people in the developing world don't have the use of one or both of their legs. Most of these don't have access to assisted devices at all. You saw the video. They don't have the resources to obtain anything or support anything that's motorized. To emphasize how difficult it is to gather statistics like that, let me tell you a story. 
some of our, a group of our mobility worldwide people took some carts to a very remote village and they went looking, searching for people that could use the cart. After inquiring and asking and searching, they found one person to give a cart to, so they gave him a cart. They came back a few months later with some more carts and looked some more, and they found a dozen people who could use a cart. So they gave those out. They came back again the third, third trip in a few months, and 300 people met them looking for carts. Why didn't they find those people in the first trip? In many places, people believe that handicaps are a curse because you or your family did something wrong and you're being punished. The others believe that if you can't support your family, they just relegate you to the back room and try to forget about you because you're an embarrassment to the family. When these people are given a cart, their mobility is restored, their life is changed instantly, and they gain the ability to go to school, go to church, hold or start a job, visit with friends, and they become socially accepted. Dr. Roger Hoffmeister is a doctor, a Peace Corps worker, and a Mobility Worldwide Health Advisor. He says that there's no medical practice in the world that will make the immediate and dramatic difference that giving a cart makes. One moment, they're totally immobile, lying in their bed, and the next moment, they're up pedaling down the road, off and going. Some have used their new mobility to d deliver vegetables they've grown, or cell phones they repair, or clothes they've sewn. Some use the cart as a mini-mart. They put an ice chest on the back, a roof over the top, they hang snacks down from the roof, and they troll the streets doing business. One recipient put a roof on this cart, a car battery underneath the seat, and a, and a car radio, light strings around it, and fenders on it. The children use their cart to go to school, where they go from being neglected to being the hero of the school, because all the kids want to ride on that cart. And mobility provides everybody the opportunity to go to church. Now imagine 80,000 persons who've risen from a life of immobility, poverty, marginalization, and often a life of disgrace to a life of dignity, hope, comfort, and, and productivity. They now can sit up straight and, and look at you at eye level and smile and crank their cart down the road. A line of 80,000 of them, bumper to bumper, would be 80 miles long. That's a Imagine from San Antonio to Austin down I-35. Talk about traffic jam. So you might ask, what have we learned over these 25 years? We certainly ask ourselves that question. We've learned that what President Obama called the power of we, the utterly amazing power of a small group of people to get together around a single basic idea and put their minds and their hearts to it. We learn that the power of we is much greater than the power of me. We learn that the power and potential of volunteers, those individuals who unselfishly give themselves for a greater cause. A story about that. Back in the days when there was pump organs before they made them electronic, a famous organist was giving a recital in a big church 
with stained glass windows and everything. And there was a small boy who was put behind the organ to pump the air that was needed to make the organ go. So the organist began, I'll begin, I'm going to play for you one of Bach's greatest. And he plays whatever, da-da-da. And he, then he says, now I'll play a piece for, by Beethoven. Boom, 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 whatever that is. After that, he says, now I'll honor you with Susan, one of Sousa's great marches. Nothing happened. He says, pump, boy, pump. And he, the boy says, when you say we will play, I will pump. <laughs> Mobility worldwide is a we activity. All honors are we honors and all problems are we problems. If any one of us is out of tune, we're all out of tune. If one of us has a great story to, to, to tell, then we all rejoice and it becomes our story. That's the way volunteers play. That's the way the body of Christ works, as Paul described in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. All parts of the body are needed, and each performs according to its individual ability. No one of them can act very long all by itself. We've learned that faith is a verb. To believe is commendable, but it must be followed by action. It doesn't matter a heck of a lot what we say we believe. We can quote a lot of creeds, all the creeds we want, but until we put it into action, it doesn't mean anything to many people. We learn that the cross is more than a necklace or a church ornament. The cross is a lifestyle. Delbert Groves once said that the only Jesus that some folks will ever see has three wheels. We've witnessed miracles. Many times the local pet shop is about to run out of money. We're concerned that we were going to have to either slow down production or stop it altogether. Suddenly one or more checks started arriving. It happened many times over. Dave Frazier always pointed out to our attention that with an amazement that we now call it the Dave Frazier effect. We've learned that work in our shop is fun. Work with good friends, good tools, and the camaraderie of working together for a great cause is fun. It started with building my shop. But then we see a video about those persons crawling up to get on one of the carts we built. We see the immediate change it made in their lives, and we experience joy. A poet once wrote, I slept and dreamed that life was joy. I woke and found that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Uh, it's been my observation that a community runs on volunteers. A few examples, scouting, youth sports, community health services such as Meals on Wheels, emergency relief activities like Red Cross, service clubs like Rotary and Lions and Kiwanis, and just helping your neighbors in need. And of course, churches. Volunteering is anything that uses your talents or where you have the ability to respond that you don't get paid to do. Where would our cities be without volunteer organizations and the people who make them go? Where could our cities be if more people volunteered for something? What problems would go away? What advantages would develop? Imagine what could benefit if bars were turned into volunteer centers? What would it take to wake up the couch potatoes? 
worldwide, volunteerism only occurs significantly in first world countries. That is where all of the basics of life are taken care of. Everywhere else, all available time must be spent trying to achieve the basic of life or to get the income to obtain them. They must receive pay or they can't do the work. They can't volunteer. Barbara and I learned this when we were at a national rotary convention with a booth promoting her babysitter training course. We talked to people from Mexico about babysitting and we're told that in the barrios, babysitting is unheard of. You see, people don't trust their neighbors to take care of their kids. If you don't have family to take care of your children, you can't work. Where there's no income, professional childcare doesn't exist either. The only way we can have mobility shops in Africa is by paying the people to work there. They can't afford to volunteer. I once heard a preacher give a sermon on the choice of a profession, and he quoted a song that stuck with me and applies to our work, our hobbies, and our discretionary time. It starts and ends with these lines. Well, you got to get a glory from the work you do, for you got to get a glory or you're dead inside. There are re rewards to volunteering and serving, and you never can tell when or where they will come from or in what form, and it may take you sometimes a while to realize that you've been blessed. One very memorable experience I had occurred when I was a young adult and a scoutmaster, and we had a boy in our troop who was asthmatic, and I think he was kind of a slow learner, and his mom was a single parent, but he was at every scout meeting, everyone that he could, and he went on all the campouts. And when we'd go on a campout, his mom would bring me his medicine, give it to me for him to take. And he knew to take it. And so on this one particular occasion, early in our experience together, he came to me to get his medicine. And he says, can I have some juice to take it with? He knew that there was some juice in the ice chest at his patrol. And I said, Steve, that juice is for breakfast tomorrow. If you have some now, somebody's going to be short in the morning. He said, but my mom gives me juice. And I says, well, you can do it with water. You've done it before. And I get a little more feedback from him. And I said, Steve, take it with water and pretend like it's juice. And so a little more back and forth. And finally, he popped the pills in his mouth, and he took a big swig of water and swallowed them. It worked. And I said, Steve, how is the orange juice? And he looked at me defiantly and said, it was grape. <laughs> I've reveled in that answer for 35 years. So I leave you with that. A few questions that you might take as you go away. What abilities do I have that might use to help others? You do have some, even if it's just the telephone. Do I use my discretionary time advantage to fill a need? Do I get satisfaction or glory, as the poem says, from the ways I spend my discretionary time? Do I get a glory? Do I get a feedback? How and where could I volunteer my services? Here am I, Lord. Send me. That's the sermon that I wrote over two weeks ago. Tuesday night, I went to the board meeting, and 
the opportunity that this sermon asked for is slapped right in our face. She announced the need for somebody to do carnival, a volunteer. And I, has, I want to take a few minutes to tell you about that. This church had been doing carnival almost since it started back in the 60s or 70s. I know I've been participating in it since 1980, and we've always had chicken fajitas, it seemed like. And the way that it works is that you get a letter about this time of year that says, come to a meeting in early February, where they tell you all about it, what you can do and can't do, and how to sign up and all that stuff. The deadline to sign up is in early April. You have to sign up, and if you want to continue to do what you've been doing, you need to sign up on time to get the booth that we've been doing and the chicken fajitas that we've been cooking. If we turn down either one of those, then somebody else can grab it. There's been some talk about changing the menu. Well, if we did that, uh, then we have to find something that nobody else does because you can't have two people selling the same thing. They won't allow that. So if you don't sign up, then they give away both your booth and your menu item. To continue, each year is a, is a right now decision, but it, to decide not to do it is a permanent decision. If you want to come back, you, stack, you get at the back of the line, you get a booth that maybe is a piece of dirt or, or a, a concrete booth that's way out in the back, and then you have to compete for or find something that nobody else is selling. So it's a permanent decision. The other thing is organization. We owe Judy and Ken an apology for loading them up with all the work that they've done for many years on Carnival. I think that the proper way to do it would be to have some captains that would take charge of different parts of the work, somebody to set the place up and take it down. A captain for each day, they'd only have to be there for the day, they don't have to be there for four days in a row to make sure that the volunteers know what they're doing and that they're all there and that the money gets counted. And, uh, and we need somebody to make sure that the food is obtained and, and brought in and then uh, and is there when we need it. Then we also need a banker that counts the money at the end of the day and gets it in the bank. Beyond that, a colonel, we might spell it K-E-R-N-E-L, <laughs> doesn't do any of that work. He makes sure that those things all happen. He answers questions and solves problems and makes sure that, that, that everything goes smoothly. Then there's the, the lieutenants who help the captains get their part of the job done. And the rest of us is the army that signs up for one or two, who work one or two shifts. So it's, it simplifies everything. And nobody has to do the huge job that Judy and Ken did. So, I'd like to take a straw poll. How many of you think, raise your hand, that you think we ought to continue to participate in Carnival? Now, keep your hand up if you want to do something about it. You can do that by taking a bulletin or a piece of paper and writing your name your contact information, name, uh, phone number, or email, and what you'd like to do, and leave it on the Welcome Center back there. We thank you, and we'll find out whether we act or not.